welcome to the Ballot Ball podcast for May 2016. I'm your host and commissioner of BallotBall.com, James Murphy. Before we get to this month's topics, we've got some big news. Regular listeners know that I'm usually joined on the podcast by my co-host and mascot, Seamus the Beagle, but a couple of weeks ago, we had a new addition to the team, and so I'm proudly joined by both Seamus and his new brother, Tank, the Beagle Basset Hound Mutt. You can find pictures of both of them on, a, on our About page on the Ballot Ball website, and you can shoot me a line to tell me who's your favorite. There's a Facebook fan page, or you can tweet us at ballot underscore ball. But enough with this preamble, it's on to the show. As we're recording the broadcast, there's a bit of a lull in the American presidential campaign. With Ted Cruz and John Kasich dropping out of the Republican race, Donald Trump has his nomination all but officially sewn up. On the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton is pretty much assured the nomination as well, but Bernie Sanders isn't planning on going anywhere until the Democratic convention at the end of July. Since all the Democratic contests award delegates proportionally, it's incredibly unlikely that Sanders can close the gap. However, his hope is that he can convince the party's superdelegates to come over to his side at the convention and make up the difference. Superdelegates make up about 15% of all delegates, and Clinton's lead in the pledge delegates is not high enough to win without them. So we'll keep an eye on that race. But my guess is Sanders would need to rack up some big and unexpected wins in order to convince the superdelegates to jump ship. May is looking like it's going to be pretty good for Bernie. He already won in West Virginia, and Kentucky and Oregon look like they'll go his way as well. But a month from now, the primaries will end with California and New Jersey, and Clinton has a big lead in both. Bah! I said I wasn't going to get caught up in the presidential election, and there I go, parsing superdelegate courting strategy. Today, we're actually leaving Trump and Clinton and Sanders aside. We're going to talk about a bigger issue, because elections aren't just about those who get elected, they're also about who gets to vote. In our first segment, I'm going to talk about why different states have different views on allowing convicted felons to vote, and whether these different rules are good or bad for democracy. Once we solve that issue, we'll hop in our space and time machine for Ballot Ball Classic. We'll travel back to April 27th, 1994, and witness the best possible example of how a convicted felon can improve their society by being included in the democratic process. You know what? I don't really like this as a tease, referring to a, this guy as a convicted felon is about as ugly way as you can possibly describe him. I won't ruin the surprise yet, but if April 27th, 1994 doesn't ring a bell, I'll give you a couple more hints. This guy won a Nobel Peace Prize after getting out of jail, Morgan Freeman and Idris Elba have played him in a movie, and he is a first-round Hall of Famer once the Ballot Ball Hall of Fame complex is completed. So there you go. We'll talk about felons in the U.S., then we'll talk about a mystery felon saving the, saving the world in South Africa. Ah, crap, another hint. I'm still not giving it away yet. Once we're done with these two, these two topics, we're headed to Europe to a country that holds a special place in my heart. In a little under eight weeks, my favorite Britain will vote on whether or not they will want to leave the European Union. I'll talk about what the heck is going on in Europe and whether or not the so-called Brexit will affect your Eurail Pass. All right, then. Felons voting in America. In April, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe issued an executive order giving back voting rights to over 200,000 felons who had completed their sentences. Since this is an election year, there was a mostly partisan reaction with Democrats celebrating the move as a civil rights victory and Republicans criticizing it as an abuse of power that went around the state legislature. What's hidden in those claims is the electoral reality that Virginia is a swing state in the 2016 general election, and the move will disproportionately help the Democrats. Of the 200,000 newly elect eligible voters, the group is disproportionately African-American, and so according to the general demographics of America, will disproportionately vote for Democrats. 
Once we have the registration data, we'll be able to say whether or not this is a fact, but I just wanted to bring this up because questions of race and partisanship are inseparable to the history of denying vo voting rights to felons. They have gone hand in hand for over 100 years, and what we're left with today is a hodgepodge of state systems which have a half a dozen different policies regarding them, regarding when, if ever, a former convict gets the right to vote back. This isn't all doom and gloom, however. Recent statements by GOP House Speaker Paul Ryan and the billionaire libertarian Koch brothers have stated their hope that racial inequality of the justice system will soon become a bipartisan issue. And maybe someday soon we can have a discussion about voting rights without it being framed in a partisan way. But as of today, that's a pretty tricky thing to ask. Voting rights for former criminals ranges the gambit across America. Iowa, Florida, and Kentucky are the most restrictive. Any felony conviction in those states leads to a lifetime ban of voting rights, the exception being if you can personally convince the governor to set your sentence aside once you've gotten out of jail, and this is not a common occurrence. The vast majority of states return voting rights to former prisoners at some point. Seven states consider some crimes to be serious enough to take away your voting card for life, but others will be forgiven once you've served your time. Fourteen states let you vote once you get out of jail, regardless of the crime. Four states let you vote once you get out of jail and get off parole. Twenty states, most recently Virginia, thanks to Governor McAuliffe's order, let you vote once you've completed your prison time, parole, and probation. Now, there's only two states left, and that's Maine and Vermont, and they're the only places where voting rights are never part of the criminal justice system. Convicted felons who are currently in jail can vote on election day, just like everyone else. So, what's the right answer? Should a DUI conviction mean you can't vote for Ivanka Trump in 2020? Should a murder conviction mean that you can never vote again? Looking around the world gives a little hint about what argument is winning the day. In an analysis of 45 countries, ProCon.org found that only four countries bar felons for life. America is one of those, if you count Florida, Kentucky, and Iowa. While the vast majority of these countries return voting rights upon the completion of, of their sentence, or let prisoners vote from behind bars, like Maine and Vermont. But that's the rest of the world for you. This is the U.S. of A. Let's take a look at our own history and see how we got here. Like all good stories about American history, we'll start with the Founding Fathers. The Constitution leaves suffrage questions to the states, and slowly but surely, starting in 1792 in Kentucky, the states started banning voting rights. However, in almost all of these cases, they were extremely specific about what crimes would result in a voting ban. Kentucky banned those convicted of, quote, bribery, perjury, and forgery. Vermont disenfranchised those guilty of corruption, and many other states use the term, quote, infamous crime to indicate that only the most serious crimes should precipitate a denial of suffrage. Of all the early 19th century state constitutions, Louisiana has my favorite because they take on a criminal scourge that has been sweeping the nation. If you, quote, engage in a duel with deadly weapons against a citizen of Louisiana, unquote, you can forget about ever voting again. Besides infamous crimes and dueling bans, it seemed clear that the early constitu state constitutions were drafted with the intent to link voting bans with crimes that had to do with the elections themselves. Wisconsin would ban you if you were convicted of gambling on elections, and bribery was brought up in, about al in almost every state constitution. This seems like a pretty reasonable connection. In today's America, if you're convicted of certain crimes against children, you can't go near a school again. It kind of makes sense that if you commit a voting-related crime, you shouldn't be let near a voting booth. But... Now in our history, we've reached the Civil War, and this is when race begins to play a real role in linking criminality with disenfranchisement. When the 15th Amendment is passed in 1870, it becomes illegal to use skin color as a way to ban someone from the voting booth. 
in future podcasts, we'll get to all the dirty tricks of Jim Crow laws that were meant to get around the 15th Amendment, from poll taxes to literacy tests to all manner of voter intimidation. There's one story on Ballot Ball's website already that goes into this a little bit, and it's really infuriating to think about. Just Google Harvard students take Louisiana literacy test if you want to see an example of what I'm talking about. There are a bunch of videos of Harvard students trying and failing to pass the literacy tests, and it exemplifies that failure was exactly the goal. But getting back to linking criminality with suffrage, as the 20th century came along, more and more offenses were added to the list of crimes that could take away your vote. Vagrancy, miscegenation, crimes involving, quote, moral turpitude. All these crimes now meant that you weren't able to vote. In 1901, the president of Alabama's Constitutional Convention put it bluntly that these reforms' intent was, quote, within the limits of the federal constitution to establish white supremacy, unquote. Thanks in no small part to people like the president of Alabama's Constitutional Convention being so open about why they were banning more and more people from the voting booth, Congress and the courts began to take action. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 and a series of Supreme Court decisions invalidated many of the unfair practices like the taxes and the tests, but they left in place the right for states to link crime and disenfranchisement. In an 8 to nothing decision, the court said in the Hunter v. Underwood case that criminal disenfranchisement is legal as long as there is no, quote, racially discriminatory intent, unquote. So now we're relatively back to the current day, and in many ways, there is a real hope for improvement. With opposition to mass incarceration becoming more and more a bipartisan effort, the fact that criminal disenfranchisement cannot be wholly separated from racial disenfranchisement is in the offing. Multiple sources put the number of those without voting rights at nearly 6 million people. And the NAACP says that almost half the U.S. prison population is black. If you add the Hispanic population, you have almost 60% well overrepresented when compared to the country at large. So, seeing that even if you can't prove that there is a racially discriminatory intent in banning former felons from voting, there is definitely a racially discriminatory effect. This story began with Virginia's ex executive order that restored 200,000 people's voting rights. This is only the most recent action in a trend that, that started at the dawn of the century. New Mexico's legislature repealed the lifetime ban on felons back in 2001, and since then, Alabama's legislature softened its laws, allowing some felons to get their, their vote back. And many other governors have issued executive orders like Virginia's. If current trends are any indication, it looks like red states and blue states are moving away from lifetime bans. The exception seems to be battleground states. Take Florida and Iowa, for example. Both are battlegrounds in the past few elections, and both have gone back and forth on this issue. In the early 2000s, Democratic governors issued executive orders similar to Virginia's, only to have those orders countermanded by Republican governors who succeeded them. Whatever your position is on the issue, it seems clear that voting rights provided by executive order seem like a pretty unstable way to enact law. Remember the 90s? There was a Clinton running for president, a movie called Independence Day was coming out, and O.J. Simpson was all over television. Those are the good old days. Welcome to Ballot Ball Classic. This is the part of the show where I reveal I have the power to travel through space and time. Rather than using that power for practical reasons, I use it for a podcast in order to re-examine famous elections of the past. Today, we're whizzing back to April 1994. 
I teased this topic at the beginning of the show, and faithful listener, I'm, I'll finally reward you for your patience. I've taken us to Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, and we're about to witness the election of Nelson Mandela, one of the seminal events in the democratic wave that was spreading around the world at this time. To refresh your memory a little, South Africa had for decades been under the apartheid system. This system of laws explicitly made sure that black Africans lived separate lives from the entitled whites. For Americans, we often make quick comparisons to our own history of segregation under Jim Crow, but apartheid was different in both scope and scale. American segregation involved the majority discriminating against a minority. In South Africa, the script was flipped. Blacks made up over 75% of the population and yet were forbidden to enjoy the best housing, best schools, and best public services. While most people understandably concentrate on the plight of black South Africans, both Asians and women were also targeted under apartheid. It's important to remember that it was in apartheid South Africa that a young Indian lawyer named Mohandas Gandhi began his career of fighting for human rights. To be sure, this was an anachronistic system that looked like it had been frozen in time from the colonial era. And April 27th, 1994 is the day history finally catches up with it. For the first time in this election, blacks were allowed to vote, and the ensuing election took place over three days. As a side note, the reason it took three days was because that's how long the lines were to the ballot box. The number of eligible voters had jumped by 75%. Nearly 20 million people stood in line for three days waiting their turn to vote. And when all was said and done, Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress Party was elected with 62% of the vote. A landslide. The reason why I'm putting Mandela in the Ballot Ball Hall of Fame is because how he rose above partisanship and truly put his nation's interest at heart. But to explain why, we'll have to go back another 30 years to 1964, when Mandela was convicted of a variety of conspiracy and sabotage charges in his effort to end apartheid. For his part, Mandela readily admitted his guilt in planning sabotage against a regime he deemed to be illegitimate. If he'd lived in Florida or Iowa or Kentucky, this conviction would have carried with it a lifetime ban on voting and make it more difficult to run for office. But since he lived in South Africa, he didn't have to have the vote to begin with, and since he was black, so they never bothered to add the additional ban to the paperwork. At the trial, Mandela gave an impassioned speech where he said he was prepared to die in the pursuit of a democratic South Africa, and then he was promptly locked away at the prison on Robben Island for the next three decades. While a prisoner, Mandela became the symbol of of apartheid that the resistance could rally around. International scorn began to be heaped on the nation as videos of South African police beating black protesters shamed the government. The Catholic Church, in the form of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, worked to pressure the government, and all around the world, free Mandela chants could be heard, and activists began campaigning to convince people to stop buying wine and other products that were propping up the apartheid regime. The PR battle reached a new low when, in 1989, Hollywood got in on the action by pitting Mel Gibson and Danny Glover against a gang of racist South African diplomats who were smuggling gold cougarans in Lethal Weapon 2. So, what was going on? Why was South Africa able to keep up such an odious order of racial segregation? The easiest explanation is that the Cold War was to blame. Governments in the West were willing to cast a blind eye to apartheid as long as the government of South Africa kept up its efforts to fight off communist elements in Angola and Mozambique. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, all of a sudden the threat of communism fell with it. All over Africa, dictators and despotic regimes who had been propped up by the West in order to fight off the commies found they couldn't get Washington on the phone anymore. The early 90s was a time of democratization all over the continent, and South Africa couldn't escape this wave. 
the country saw its economy faltering as America and other governments imposed sanctions. Tourism was affected because no one wanted an apartheid stamp on their passport, and so little by little, apartheid was dissolved. In 1990, Nelson Mandela, 27 years into a life sentence, was released from prison by President F. Vier de Klerk. The relationship between de Klerk and Mandela is one of the great odd couple relationships in history. They were rivals in almost every way, but they knew they had to work together if they wanted to avoid a civil war. They knew apartheid's days were numbered, but feared what would happen that what would what happened in neighboring Zimbabwe would happen in South Africa. It was in Zimbabwe that revolutionary hero Robert Mugabe had overthrown the odious white-controlled government and dealt with racial tensions with a blunt instrument. The minority white population was stripped of all their land and deport, or deported en masse. Bloodshed ensued and the economy collapsed almost instantly. De Klerk knew that releasing Mandela and allowing blacks to vote would mean his own electoral defeat in 1994, but that was a far more preferable outcome than a bloody ethnic cleansing. Now, put yourself in Mandela's shoes. You've been fighting against apartheid your whole life and brutalized in prison for a great portion of it. Now you're free, you know apartheid is on the ropes, and you know that whatever you say next, an overwhelming majority of the newly empowered black population will follow you. What do you say? About two weeks after his release from prison, Mandela spoke before a crowd in Durban. He wanted to address the violence that was springing up between blacks and whites who were dealing with this new power dynamic. He said, quote, Take your guns, your knives, and your pangas, which is another word for machete, and throw them into the sea, end quote. He denounced the violence that was springing up because he wanted the next election to be indisputable and unequivocal. In 1964, he had been put in jail for trying to overthrow the government illegally. In 1994, he was going to overthrow the government, but it was going to be through an election. His efforts to reach out to white South Africans earned him a Nobel Peace Prize along with President de Klerk. Mandela's term in office was not free from controversy, but when you consider how steep a hill it was to hold the nation together at this time, it speaks to the awesome power of political leadership can have. It's also a damn good argument to not impose a lifetime ban on voting rights for convicted felons. What if the U.S. had some need for its own Nelson Mandela someday, but that, figure, but that future hero can't run for office because he was convicted of a crime 30 years ago in Kentucky and is ineligible to run for office? Not a great idea. Welcome to the final story for this month's podcast. I'm trying to be more thematic in the topics I choose each episode, but we've come to a bit of a snag for our international section. We started off with the question of whether or not felons should be allowed to vote, and then we went to South Africa to see the best possible example of a convicted felon running for office and saving his country. But now we're just going to head north to South Africa's former colonial kingdom and check out a story of, of an upcoming vote in Great Britain. It's not the best transition, I admit, but too bad. The story is too important to miss out on. Starting on April 15th and continuing until June 23rd, we have entered the official campaign season on something that is now unofficially called the Brexit. This time span is a part of a fun quirk in the British electoral law that forbids political advertising unless the former election has been declared. The First Amendment is the likely culprit for why we can't rein in the seemingly, seemingly endless presidential campaign in the U.S., but that's another matter. So what is the Brexit? Well, it's a question it's a question that is being put to British voters, but it doesn't have anything to do with who should be elected to parliament or who should win the next Eurovision competition. It's a relatively simple question of whether or not the nation should extricate itself from the European Union. 
Britain plus exit equals Brexit. Pretty clever, eh? Don't forget, this island invented the English language, so it's no surprise that they've got such a beautiful turn of phrase. The country is divided over the question of whether or not being a part of the EU is helping or hurting it. If voters have had enough and vote to quit the EU, the Parliament will at once uh, write Brussels a hasty Dear John letter, pull up the bridge across the English Channel, and go it alone, Churchill-style. The question of the Brexit has divided the people and the government in part because no one knows exactly what effect it would have. No country has ever left the EU before, and so there is a lot of argument about what the effect will have. Some people say it will save the country money, while others say it will be disastrously expensive and ruin the economy. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, non-European listeners might need a quick refresher on what the EU is. Since 1957, the EU has been an organization that's linked 28 European countries, plus their 500 million citizens, together in a single market. Citizens of these countries can travel, and somewhat more controversially, move across borders without getting a visa. Plus, the national central banks supply money to a fund that spends it on a host of things from agriculture to infrastructure to energy projects across the continent. It's sort of a watered-down federal system that isn't anywhere near as strong as the control the federal government has over the states in the U.S., but it's a pretty fair analogy for our purposes. In addition to EU citizens being able to cross borders freely, most products can as well. And whenever human beings or products want to come in the EU from the outside, most immigration and trade policy is decided on the EU by the EU as a whole. The referendum in Britain is to decide whether or not the nation thinks all this collective action and cooperation is in its own interest, and the two sides have ast assembled a startlingly diverse band of supporters on their sides. In one corner, we have the Vote Leave campaign, and their argument goes something like this. There is something rotten in the state of Denmark, or not Denmark exactly, but the EU as a whole. In recent years, some of the newest additions to the club have not been pulling their weight. <coughs> Greece! <coughs> it's mostly Greece! <coughs> Now, whether or not these countries ruined themselves with irresponsible economic practices, or the EU was ignorant to begin with when they brought them in into the fold, doesn't really matter. The point is, these poorer countries are taking in more than they are contributing to the central bank, and their economies are collapsing. What's more, the crisis in Syria has led to a huge influx of immigration from the Middle East, which is coupled with the terrorist attacks in Paris and Brussels, and stoked fears about Islamic extremism and an immigration explosion. Added to this is the fact that while Greece gets more than it pays for, Britain is getting the opposite deal. More money leaves London to build roads in Portugal than returns from the EU to subsidize British farmers and the like. Leaving the EU means British Britain can decide for themselves who gets to move to their island, what prices, what prices to charge for imported goods, and what, if anything, should be done about Greece and other nations' that, economies that are on the verge of collapse. In the other corner... We have Britain stronger in Europe. I realize that these two sides could have thought of more clever names. They both sound like they've been translated by a foreign language into English. But anyway, Britain stronger in Europe. The argument here goes that free trade and globalization are unavoidable in the modern age, and Britain is much better off with a seat at the table of the massive EU economy than as an outsider negotiating its own terms on a case-by-case -case basis. The EU was established after World War II to bring the continent together, and actively working to break it into smaller pieces is just a terrible misreading of the mistakes of history. If British voters want to leave Europe, a massive amount of foreign capital will leave the country, and hard-working, industrious immigrants who would have made the nation's economy stronger and more vibrant will opt to live on the continent and leave Britain aging and non-competitive. 
I realize it's a tad narcissistic to keep comparing European issues with American politics, but this whole campaign does strike me as being at least a little related to what's happening on this side of the pond. You might not be surprised to hear that Donald Trump has tweeted support for Britain leaving Europe, while President Obama has expressed his hope that Britain should stay. But we shouldn't just see the two sides as simply partisan. In fact, neither the Conservative Party or the Labour Party has officially endorsed either position. The campaigns to leave or stay in, Europe, in the EU are themselves considered to be independent, almost independent candidates asking for the voters' approval. Each campaign is funded by tax dollars to the tune of £600,000, and they can each spend up to £7 million of their, on their own. But both sides have, have supporters on every side of the political aisle. The Vote, Leave, the Vote Leave campaign is backed by former London Mayor Boris Johnson, about 130 Conservative members of Parliament, and a handful of Labour MPs. But there are also farming organizations and other labor groups who look forward to filling all the jobs left vacant by fleeing EU citizens with British workers. Most interestingly, the groups Muslims for Britain and Out and Proud, a gay rights organization, are supporting the Leave campaign because they think Britain is far and away more friendly to their interests than the continent as a whole. Meanwhile, the Britain Stronger in Europe bloc has a great deal more of what you might call establishment support. Prime Minister David Cameron is the most prominent supporter, although he has tried several times to negotiate with the EU to give Britain special perks in order to dull the impact of the Leave campaign's accusations that Britain is getting a raw deal. In addition to Cameron, the head of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, also favors staying at the, in the EU, as are most big business organizations most, and most liberal democratic MPs. My favorite bit of drama involves Scotland. You might remember a few years ago when the land of William Wallace voted on whether or not it would become independent from Britain. Well, back then the EU opposed them, and the Scots were hopping mad about it. So you might imagine they'd get their revenge by voting en masse to at least leave the EU. But, oh no, it's not Brussels that Scotland wanted to break up with. It's those damn English. So, as of today, Scotland has gone from the region that most likely wanted to break away from England to the region showing the most support for staying in the EU. Nearly every Scottish MP is in favor of staying, and almost 60% of the people do as well. Go figure. It's almost as if Texas wanted to secede from the Union, but wanted to stay in NAFTA. So, what will happen when the vote happens on June 23rd? Right now, the polls seem to show that Britain will, will indeed stay in Europe. But the more interesting result would be what would happen if, if this is wrong. Remember, David Cameron is the Prime Minister, and both him and the opposition leader believe Britain should remain. In fact, this whole referendum is only happening because it was one of Cam Cameron's campaign promises. He never wanted to do this in the first place. It's like he was saying, vote for me, and then I'll give you guys a vote on a topic that I totally think is a bad idea. What happens if British voters say, you know what, let's pull up the drawbridge and get out of the EU? Has a government ever had to go ahead with a law that they actually didn't think was a good idea in the first place? How could the voters have given the government legitimacy with one vote and then told them to do something they didn't want to do with another? Should the Leave Europe vote carry the day, a countdown clock will begin. Cameron will have two years to craft the legislation that, in his own opinion, would have dire consequences to the British economy. It's as if a representative democracy and direct democracy will have come into a direct clash. Some political scientists believe uh, that if this were to happen, Cameron would call a new election at some point within the two-year window. Presumably, he would campaign against the referendum's result and hopefully get elected again. Then, he could claim an electoral mandate that would allow him to ignore the referendum entirely. Essentially, the strategy would be, the people have voted for the wrong things, let's keep on voting until they get it right. 
And so, we've come to the end of another Ballot Ball podcast. I hope you enjoyed the bizarre world of voting for another month. I'll be back in June with another episode, and until then, you can reach out to us on Facebook and check out weekly stories on BallotBall.com's homepage. Please tell your friends and family about the podcast and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. You don't even have to listen. Just hit the subscribe button and forget about it. We'll talk to you next time.